welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Thursday, July 2nd, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Take an established painter and put him in the middle of a functioning genetics lab. Then, see what happens. Does that sound like a recipe for disaster or success? The Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard tried just that, putting Brooklyn-based artist Daniel Cohn right in the middle of their genetic scientists. The result of the fusion is now on show at the Cynthia Reeves Gallery in Manhattan. This week, I'll tell you about how the collaboration got started and what it's done for the artists and the scientists involved. But before we start, we've got some really exciting news. The New York Academy of Sciences has a brand new website. Be sure to visit our new Science in the City site and update your bookmarks. Also, if you subscribe to our podcast via our RSS feed, you can find the new link for our new feed on scienceandthecity.org. If you have feedback or any questions about our new site, just send us an email at scienceandthecity@nyas.org, and we'll be happy to help you out. It's busy in the Cynthia Reeves Gallery on this Thursday night. People stream into the second floor space in Manhattan's Chelsea Gallery District. They're here for the opening of Daniel Cohn's latest show. Cohn is a French-American, Brooklyn-based painter. If you're a New Yorker, you might have seen his massive installation in Grand Central Station in 2002. Views from the World Trade Center and his reflections on 9-11. Tonight's opening is debuting a whole new phase of Cohn's work. All right, Daniel, so tell me where we are. Okay, so you're in the gallery at Cynthia Reeves on 24th Street, and you're um, in front of, I guess it's an image data set. It's a 242-tile piece. Data sets, something you might not think a painter would be too smitten with. But Cohn's latest work is inspired by hard data and hard science. For the past four years, Cohn has been working at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, a center created to fuel collaboration in the field of genetics. Todd Golub is a cancer researcher and one of the founders of the Broad Institute. About five years ago, he also discovered Cohn. I wandered into an art gallery in the Berkshires about five years ago and saw one of his paintings there. And for some reason that's still not entirely clear to me, something resonated with that painting, which on the surface one would not think bears any connection to science. Something was resonant with the science that I'd been thinking about and the process of doing scientific research in general. I think it took me quite a while to track him down uh, and finally found his email someplace and sent him an email and we had a little pen pal relationship for some period of time and then I, I went and visited him in his studio in Brooklyn. The painting that first caught Golub's eye in the Berkshires was one of Cohn's interior paintings, showing two people sitting at a simple kitchen table which was bathed in sunlight. Initially, Golub and Cohn just swapped ideas. Golub was inspired by Cohn's visual representations and interpretations of space, something that in genetics is becoming increasingly more important. Cohn was intrigued by the world of genetics and saw a natural connection between his interior paintings and the visual demands of science. I'm very interested in place. I'm the son of an architect, and my mother was an educator and taught education, and 
was interested in observation. What happens in observational situations? Is it an observer and an observed? Is it one directional? Is it and the interiors are about how to understand place, but not just in a physical way. You know, place is a is about cultural rhythms and physical rhythms and you know light and a space of understanding, traces left behind by people who sat at tables and Science is very influenced by contemporary concerns and vice versa. So is art. And so we're looking now, we're very concerned, interested in high dimensional representations of the world, high dimensional systems, networked relationships between many objects. But that's mm -hmm. also something that you, I mean, you know, as you browse the web, it's obviously one big network. And that's how we're starting to look at everything. So I'm interested in kind of seeing how those structures can influence my visual space and sort of letting them come into my place. After corresponding for a while, Gala proposed a new idea. Bring Cone to the Broad for an artist residency. In other words, put a painter next to a scientist and see what happens. The lab is set up as a big room, kind of a big football field, where we designed it from the beginning to have some flexibility in mind because we knew that science moved so rapidly that we weren't going to be able to anticipate what we were going to be needing in terms of equipment and machines and robots and things like that. So there are lab benches in this big football field, like the lab benches you might see in any laboratory, except that they're all removable. So when we had this idea that, well, maybe we should have a painter in the lab, we could just roll the benches out, and all of a sudden there was a big open space into which we could roll in some temporary walls that became a workspace for Daniel. Cohn was game, and so set up temporary shop in the corner of the lab. Todd and I both felt like the point of the residency was in some way to try and make the Broad permeable to art and not bring in art in one modality, say a 1% for the arts with a you know, $1 million sculpture, and that's the end of the story, but to try and imagine sort of countless modalities in which art could come in. It's just as much bringing in actual artists to work next to scientists and have discussions with scientists. Like Cohn's memorable discussion with Damien Young, a chemist at the Broad. I met with this chemist, Damien Young, and he was telling me about organic chemistry and diversity-oriented synthesis, which is one of the things they do at the Broad, and developing chemical libraries and all this stuff. And meanwhile, he was playing with an organic chemical model, which was very simple. It was just a black stick model. The, the nodes were just represented by the intersection of the sticks. And it was a very fun discussion, and I went back to my studio, and I put up a big sheet of paper, not in the little grids, but large sheet, and I started to draw straight lines, you know, into kind of networks and spirals and things. And then I stopped, and I thought, molecules don't have straight lines in them. What are these straight lines? And they're, oh, they're a relationship between two things, between those nodes. And so I went back to Damien and said, well, what are those straight lines that are connecting those? What is that relationship? And he said, oh, very good. You know, those are shared electrons. It's called a covalent bond. And so that made the discussion go to the next level. And, and as we talked about that, he started talking to me about orbitals, and he took me to uh, atomic orbitals, and he took me to the site called Orbitron, where they show you all of these wild orbitals. I don't know if you've seen atomic orbitals, but they're not at all what you imagine. They're not like these onion skin shells, you know, orbits around planets. They're actually much more complex, and there are these rings. And I was thinking about that and drawing some more, and then I thought, 
wait a minute, all of these things that are represented as objects, these rings and things that are the orbitals, those are only probabilistic objects. There's 99.9 .9 recurrent percentile that the electron will be found in this volume of space. But there's also a chance in quantum physics that the electron will be anywhere else in the universe. And so the boundary of that object is actually just determined by us, by the, by the viewer. And so it's a fictional object. So the drawing is the thinking tool. Cohn is a large-scale artist. He likes huge canvases and sweeping brushstrokes, and typically works with oil paint. His studio in Brooklyn is perfectly suited to his style and workflow. It has high ceilings and flat walls that he can mount his works in progress on. He has a skylight that floods natural light onto the concrete floor, and a wooden table that he uses as a giant pallet. His studio at the Broad is a lot different, and as Golub explains, so are his materials. One challenge in laboratories is that stuff blows up and you have flames and things like that, and so one needs to be appropriately cautious. And so I, I think we did put some restrictions on what Daniel could bring into the lab in terms of volatile paints and things like that, but he adapted very well. And I think working with watercolors, for example, uh, he did as a result of the fact that we said, you can't bring stuff that blows up into the lab. And so he said, okay, I'll reinvent myself as a watercolorist. And um, now he has really interesting works that are based on those watercolor sketches. Here's Cohn. When I got into the studio, and even a little bit before, I started working with watercolor on paper in small pieces. And we had been thinking about a distorted grid. I'm also interested in states and digital versus analog and high-tech, low-tech. And fairly quickly, I reduced the watercolors to 8 by 8 inch squares of paper that I can scan very easily on you know, affordable but very good quality scanners. I would cut all these 8 by 8 inch sheets of paper and then paste them together and usually into grids of 3 by 3 and do drawings often after discussions with scientists or to develop ideas that had emerged out of it. And from the 3 by 3 grids Cohn created with his smaller watercolor squares came something else entirely. Those original watercolor grids that I was doing were a way of thinking, but they also became, as I was scanning all the states, you know, I'd, I'd do one and then do another one, and then it would, it would let it dry, and I would undo the tape, scan all nine pieces, tape it back together, the next day work on it some more. So I had these states and these series. I realized I was developing a data set, you know, and it was not intentional. I wasn't saying, oh, all these scientists are looking at data sets, I'm going to develop my own data set. It was more mimetic. So I've been doing these watercolors for two and almost three years. I have a little over, th maybe 1,200 in the computer. One of the things I was doing is I was, so I had all these watercolors, these little squares that I number when I'm making them. They're numbered by the date they're made. And then the first set of nine would be one through nine. So one, two, three, along the top row, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And I was using Picasa, which is the Google viewer in it, to, to see all of this stuff. And depending on the size of your window, they would line up, you know, you might have a window that's eight wide, and so you'd have the nine would, would go along the top, and then you'd have one, and then you'd have another painting you're doing that day, and then another one, you know, from the next day, and new patterns would emerge, because I was overlaying images that didn't actually fit together, but there was, it wasn't random, because they were still ordered, you know, linearly in a one-dimensional string, but in the two dimensions, there were new patterns emerging, and it seemed First, it was wild because the, the new patterns were actually much more exciting and meaningful and fun 
than what I had done, and it gave rise to new assemblies. You know, Todd used to tell me, well, we gather lots of data, and then we massage that data in digital space to try and extract patterns, and then we try and understand which patterns are kind of random or noise generated, and which ones are meaningful and what they mean. And so I felt like kind of involved in this visual massaging of my data and my analog information to try and find new patterns. Cohn's way of working with his visual data sets have changed things at the Broad Institute. So much so that Golub and Cohn created what they call a visualization group, or Viz group for short. Golub explains the inspiration behind creating the group. I think if you have scientific training, you come to the representation of data, particularly complex data, in a pretty restrictive, narrow sort of way. It's, you know, a two-dimensional plot, there's an x-axis, and there's a y-axis, and then you plot stuff in those two dimensions. And that's kind of it. It's clear the kind of data that we're generating now doesn't fit that type of representation very well at all, and yet we continue to struggle to squeeze it into that kind of format because it's the only thing we know how to do. And so bringing people that bring to the table a whole different experience, they don't know anything about science, don't know anything, need to know anything about science necessarily, can, I think, bring a whole fresh new perspective. Cohn has a similar perspective. The idea is to be sort of a consultative body, so a scientist with a problem can come and see us and say, well, this is where we're at. These are the tools we use to analyze our data. These are the visual systems that we use to explore it. Do you have any suggestions? And the idea is that we, we would come up with an analysis of the kinds of things they're doing and what, where they could go with it. But, you know, there's lots of levels at which you can do that. I want to look at very broad questions of representation. How do you connect gene expression data, which is 20,000-dimensional space data, to sequencing data, which is potentially linear data, so one-dimensional, to other kinds of data that are often, you know, sort of, for example, molecular data, which is three-dimensional but has different ways of being represented and encoded. And so what are the kind of trans spaces of translation and what would be the common space in which you could explore that? Some of the people in our group are much more concrete thinkers. They want to know exactly, for example, at one point we might be working on a piece of software and proposing the next step of the software development, which would just be, well, we're going to go from this tree diagram to this unfolding tree to this three-dimensional unfolding tree, for example. So it's, it's really a very wide gamut of possibility. Back at the Cynthia Reeves Gallery, Cohn and Golub survey the culmination of more than four years of collaboration. Along with Cohn's massive watercolor data set mounted meticulously to one wall, there are large, bright canvases, all with a similar theme of coiling, spiraling, depth, and space. There's also an interactive flash program that allows visitors to create their own data sets using Daniel's watercolor grids. While the show has an air that's more abstract than Cohn's past work, it's easy to see the science in these paintings. I run into Damien Young, the chemist who Cohn first talked to about the structure of molecules and orbitals. Artists are very powerful in science in a sense that our conception of what we study is based on a scientist talking to an artist and being able to visualize something that actually may get put into a textbook that actually gets disseminated to the, the mass populace. And so I think that as our understanding of science through our experiments continues to expand, we must actually interact with artists, people who are able to help us visualize what the data says. And as scientists, maybe we are capable of doing that, and maybe we aren't, but I think that artists, 
people who conceptually live in the visual realm are ultimately able to help us do that much better. What's your favorite piece here? Well, I actually like the piece right over there. Can we walk the over to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one, the red one? Yeah. The... All right, so now we're in front of Damien's favorite piece. So tell me about this piece. I don't know what Daniel would call this piece, but I think I might know where the inspiration of it came from. And so what I see is the nucleus of a cell. I see DNA, and that's the genetic fingerprint of life. And then I see that's wrapped around the fingerprint of life, these proteins that actually sort of, you know, hold the DNA in and make sure it's very safe and sound and keeps it um, safe from all of the predators from its environment. And there are spaces of density within this region, and there are spaces where things are not so dense. So what I see here in the central portion of that is, is it's not very dense. That's where the nucleic acid actually wounds up in its characteristic shape. And then surrounded by it is sort of like the cover. It's like getting under this, like, you know, your favorite blanket in the wintertime, you know, surrounded on both sides of it. And it's very, very comfortable. Cohn hopes to continue working with the Broad and continue his work with the Viz Group. The Broad Institute and Golub are hoping to expand the residency program to include different kinds of artists. For Cohn, who's a fairly established painter, his Broad residency has given him a chance to play again. I don't do internet pieces or, you know, video yet or things like that. It's, you know, I love painting and it's about painting. But part of what happened by going to the Broad is that I was allowed to step out of my box. By going to the Broad, where nobody really cared what I was doing or knew about art, I could do things that were, for me, completely off the wall. Daniel Cohn's show at the Cynthia Reeves Gallery is on until July 10th. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Thanks for tuning in. If you can't get enough of Science in the City, you should follow us on Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook and find the science community in your city. Science in the City is a nonprofit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. We need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our brand new website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we'd love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.